0: Continuing through our exploration of Exodus, this really is the, uh, the central story, not just of the book of Exodus, but of uh, the whole Old Testament, uh, the Passover. Today, uh, the Jews uh, celebrate their new year in September, uh, the Hebrew month of Tishri. Uh, this, so, this year it fell on the 20th of September, if you know any. Jewish people, they would have been celebrating uh, New Year's on that day. However, no one really knows why the Jews today celebrate New Year's then when our passage clearly states that the month of Nisan, the month in which Passover uh, is celebrated, is to be the first month of the Hebrew calendar. The Israelites are to be defined by this event the Exodus. We saw it repeated in that passage, didn't we? You now, when your son asks you, "What's this all about?" It's the Lord brought us out with a strong hand out of Egypt. That was the. They always went back to what the Lord has done uh, in that event. So it marks the beginning of their calendar. All the other events, all the other festivals that they are to celebrate throughout the year were to to flow from this decisive event. For Egypt and Pharaoh, this is the final decisive plague, the one that caps off the first nine that we saw last week. Remember in the first nine plagues the the gods of Egypt were shown to be powerless in the face of the power of Yahweh, the, the one true and living God. In this Final plague, the Lord reaches right into the household of Pharaoh himself. The ancient kings were viewed as the one through whom the authority of the gods was mediated to the people. To the point that uh, in many ancient empires, the king or the emperor was considered an incarnation of the most powerful of the gods. And so this strike against Pharaoh wasn't just a strike against this dynasty of, of human kings, but it was, again, a strike against the gods of Egypt themselves who were supposed to be manifested through Pharaoh and through his sons. So the Lord says, "Can get this to work, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Why? Because I am the Lord, I am the true God. Now as a mediator then between the gods and the people, what happens to Pharaoh then also happens to the people. So this death of Pharaoh's firstborn son then filters down to every family in Egypt even right down to the level of the animals to show this extent of the Lord's judgement and this complete defeat of the Egyptian gods so it's a final decisive plague for the Egyptians but for the Israelites it's the decisive act of redemption this is an act of the Lord that will be remembered perpetually not just in the Passover feast itself and the festival of unleavened bread, but in their whole worship system. What the Israelites did on that Passover night was in a sense a template for what was to come with all of the laws around the tabernacle and the priests and the sacrifices that were all instituted at Mount Sinai. The Passover lamb is like a prototype which helps us to understand the heart of that whole system. So the blood of the lamb was taken, presumably by the head of the home, and painted on the doorframe of the home using a bunch of hyssop. Now there are two symbolisms that are combined here. In the tabernacle, the Levitical priests would take the blood of the sacrificed animal and they would throw it on the sides of the altar upon which the animal was about to be burned. Not only that, blood was sprinkled on the priests, uh, blood was sprinkled on the tabernacle itself uh, and every item that was used in there was sprinkled with blood and on the day of atonement the blood would be taken right into the most holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So blood was very much a part of the tabernacle uh, worship. Hyssop is a uh, an aromatic herb uh, that used, was used for medicinal purposes. Apparently it can also be used in cooking. And it was used to sprinkle blood and water on People and places that had become unclean to signify that their time of uncleanness had now come to an end. They were cleansed and purified. So, this application of blood was a priestly action. The head of the household was essentially functioning as a priest on behalf of his family. It signified that everyone within his home, his household, was purified and clean. They had been made holy. They, as we heard, have been set apart from the Egyptians. So that house became a sanctuary, both in the sense of being a holy place where the Lord was present, but also in the sense of being a refuge from judgment and death. Now, why use blood for purification? If I cut my finger and I get blood everywhere, I think, oh, it's all messy and dirty. Why why blood? Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the key. To be purified is to be forgiven of your sins. The blood speaks of a penalty that's been paid, blood that has been shed as the wages of sin, the blood of an innocent other that was shed instead of me so that I don't need to have my blood shed. That's why the Jews were forbidden to drink blood or to eat meat with the blood still in it. The reason given is for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So it's not that blood was considered bad or unclean so you can't eat it. Rather, to consume blood was to presume to be able to apply to yourself the cleansing power of the blood when it should actually only come to you through the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle, through a mediator. Forgiveness, salvation, cleansing, holiness must come through a mediator. I can't apply it directly myself. So because of this priestly action of the head of the household, the houses of the Israelites became like an ark. So when the judgment of God flooded across Egypt, they were safe and secure in their home. We saw the significance of the death of the firstborn for the Egyptians, but there was also a significance in this for the Israelites... 12 verse 30 tells us there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. There was in fact not a house, not a single house in Egypt that didn't contain a dead body on that night. Whether it was the body of the firstborn son or the body of the Passover lamb that sat there before them, that they consumed. When the Lord came to an Israelite house with the blood on the door frames, he allowed his judgment to pass over that house because his judgment had already been turned aside onto the Passover lamb, slain instead of their firstborn. So the Israelites weren't saved that night because they were good, but because substitutionary atonement had already been provided for them. So in this sense, judgment visited every single home in Egypt, every single family, every single firstborn. For the Egyptians, the judgment meant death, but for the Israelites, that judgment meant Redemption. And that's why the Lord makes such a strong point and why he repeated so many times through that reading about the regular observance of this Passover feast. This Passover feast would mark the start of a week-long festival of unleavened bread. They were to remember for a whole week the night that they were redeemed by the blood of a lamb. And it's why he insists on this custom of redeeming their firstborn son by sacrificing a lamb. The the joy of the birth of a firstborn child would be mingled with the solemnity of this sacrificial ritual, this slaughter of the lamb, as a reminder that As forgiven sinners, we only live and breathe by the mercy of God. Picture two Jews by the name of Benjamin and Joseph. They're in the land of Egypt the day before the Passover and they're having a chat. Benjamin says to Joseph, Man, are you little nervous about what's going to happen tonight Joseph says well um, God told us what to do through Moses you don't have to be nervous haven't you slaughtered the lamb and painted its blood on your doorposts and on the lintel have you have you done that and you're all packed and ready to go and You're going to eat the Passover lamb tonight with your family? Of course I've done that, says Benjamin. But it's still pretty scary when you think of all the things that have happened around here recently. You know, flies and the river turning to blood, it's pretty awful. And now there's the threat of the firstborn being killed. You know, it's alright for you, you've got three sons... I've only got one and I love my Reuben and the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what the Lord says. I put the blood there but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. I just hope everything is going to turn out okay. Joseph responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God implicitly. He said he will pass over our homes. What reason do we have to doubt him? Well, that night the angel of death swept through the land. Which man lost his son? The answer, of course, is neither. Because death didn't pass over them on the basis of the intensity or the clarity of the faith that they exercised. Death didn't enter at home if, if it sensed an inkling of doubt or trepidation. No, death passed Amen. over the house on the basis of the blood of the Lamb that was shed. That blood had made the home a holy place, a place where sins were forgiven, where hearts were, were cleansed and purified. The certainty of the Lord's judgment on Egypt was also the certainty of the redemption of his people. God had decided he would bring his people out. His actions weren't a response to their faith, rather their faith would be a response to his actions. So where does your assurance lie? If it's in the intensity or the clarity of your faith, then you'll always be wavering because your own wavering lack of faith will only feed your uncertainty. I was once told that uh, when I struggle in my assurance, I should always go back to the day when I invited Jesus into my life and know that if I did it, sincerely then, then I'm a true Christian. My problem with that, firstly, is I can't actually pinpoint a moment when I ask Jesus into my life. And secondly, if I could, I'd still be depending on my ability rather than his ability to save me. All I can say, for me personally, I know that there was a time when I was far away, without God, without hope. But now he has brought me near through the blood of Christ. He's brought me into a household, his household, that's marked with the blood of Christ. I think we really need a new remote for this. 1 Corinthians 5.7 tells us Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus was very deliberate in timing his visit to Jerusalem to coincide with Passover. Uh, The Passover at which he was crucified was actually the third Passover for him during his public ministry. The first time was when he came to Jerusalem and he cleared the temple of all the traders and the money changers. And then that was followed immediately by an, a night time visit by Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin. It was on that night that he said the famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There's a symbolism in that. Just as the Jews had spent the day clearing out all of the leaven and all the unleavened bread from their homes in preparation for the Passover, Jesus comes and he cleans out another kind of leaven from his father's house. It's the leaven of greed, the leaven of corruption. And then... A nighttime encounter in which Nicodemus begins to experience an exodus of sorts, a journey that begins with hearing that gospel message God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And then it culminates three years later when Nicodemus is there with Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus' body down from the cross and placing it in a tomb. The second Passover, a year later, it seems that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem for this Passover because he knew that the Jews were plotting to kill him and his time had not yet come, so he stayed away from Jerusalem. But John in his Gospel makes a point of saying in chapter 6, Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? This is on the shores of Lake Galilee. John wants us to link the events that follow to the fact that it was the time of the Passover. And what follows... Is the feeding of the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish with 12 baskets of leftover bread at the end. That night, after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples left, Exodus style. They crossed the Sea of Galilee with a great wind blowing, and there they encounter Jesus walking on the water, and he brings them safely. To the other side. To remind you of something in the Exodus story, you'll see it in a couple of weeks. The next day, the crowds are tracking him down and when they find him, this is what he says to them. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This is John 6, for those who are listening to the recording. If anyone listens, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the forefathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Can you imagine the scandal? The Jews are forbidden to drink blood. Now Jesus is saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. These two Passovers prepare us then for what happens in the third and final Passover. So Jesus had his disciples find a room and they prepared the Passover meal. And when they were all together... He transforms the Passover into what we now call Holy Communion. When the hour came, this is Luke 22, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. in my blood. The Passover meal at the time of Jesus was much simpler than that which is enjoyed by Jews today. Uh, many of the Passover traditions that Jews observe have been added in the 2000 years since the New Testament times. In Jesus' day, the Passover meal consisted simply of the meat of the Passover lamb, bitter herbs unleavened bread and wine. So given that, we we might ask why communion, if it's a continuation of the Passover, doesn't include lamb, meat and herbs? And why, why didn't Jesus say, take and eat this lamb is my body given for you, if he is truly the Passover lamb? Well it's because Jesus by his death has done away with once and for all the need for sacrifice. He's made the whole system obsolete because he's done in his sacrificial death what no sacrifice could sufficiently do, purify us from our sins by its blood. So this observance of the new Passover no longer involves the slaughter of of a lamb, the absence of the lamb speaks to us of the sufficiency of Jesus' death. Now, within a few generations of the New Testament times, most Jews stopped eating the lamb at Passover. This was largely due to the destruction of the temple and there's no longer a place that the Passover lamb can be uh, lawfully sacrificed. There's no longer a priesthood to perform the ritual. So it's a sad and poignant irony that the Jews also have a Passover feast with no Passover lamb. But that's because it's not possible for a sacrifice to be made for them. The Lord's taken that away from them to highlight the fact that freedom may only be found through Jesus the Passover lamb. Why no longer the bitter herbs the herbs were, were eaten in preparation for the lamb they, were, they eat the herbs and then the lamb and it was to be a reminder of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt so the bitter herbs were then followed by the rich sweetness of Of the lamb's meat. Now that the Jews no longer have lamb, they still eat the bitter herbs, but it's in remembrance of the temple and its destruction, the ongoing bitterness that they experience as a people. I can only theorise here, but maybe the absence of bitter herbs for us now in communion speaks to us again of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrificial death. The original Passover took Israel from the bitterness of slavery in Egypt but it didn't remove the, the times of bitterness that they were still to go through through their whole history culminating in this destruction of the temple. But salvation in Jesus deals once and for all with the bitterness of life and the bitterness of death. No matter how dark, no matter how bitter our circumstances may be, in him we have a sure hope in the resurrection and the the comforting presence of the Spirit and the words of the Father, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I want us to go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 5 because Paul makes reference to the Passover lamb uh, in a very specific context. Here's what he says from verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, what the Corinthians were boasting about was the fact that one of them had entered into a relationship with his stepmother, something that... Not even the pagans approved of. They thought that being free in Christ gave them permission to indulge in all kinds of sexual immorality because they reasoned we're no longer under the law but under grace. Doesn't matter what I do, God will forgive me anyway, that's his job. But Paul pulls no punches. He commanded them that until that man repented, he was to be expelled from their gatherings, not just for his sake, so he may realise the seriousness of his sin, but for theirs also, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The other issue that he addresses in this context is the divisions and the disputes that were taking place between fellow Christians. Some of them even escalated to them taking one another to the courts. So he says, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? He then goes on to say later in this chapter, or do not know, for the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor slindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So why does Paul specifically refer to the Passover lamb in this context of celebrating sexual immorality and uh, arguing and taking one another to court? It's because while that is what you were, Since Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you, you are that no longer. He didn't die so that you can go boldly sinning while holding behind your back an insurance policy that says I'll get into heaven at the end. No, he died so that you may die to your old self that you may die to sin, that you may die to selfishness and no longer live for yourself but live for him who loved you and died for you. See, because of the Passover lamb, the Israelites, they left their brick-making behind forever. They were no longer slaves. They were now God's treasured possession. They were set free to live into their new identity as the chosen people, as a kingdom of priests. Egypt was dead to them and they were dead to Egypt. So too in Christ. Galatians 6.14 says, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Romans 6.11 says, I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, as Christians, we continue to observe the Passover. Paul said, let us continue to celebrate this feast. We do it in two ways. The first, as we've seen in communion, when we remember and we receive a new and afresh the sacrifice of the Passover Lamb Jesus on our behalf. But the second is here and it parallels that practice of cleansing out the leaven from their households. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. The Bible likens the church to many things, a bride, a body, an army, a household. But here, the church is a lump of dough, a lump of unleavened dough. And Paul shows us how this this magnificent truth, this beautiful truth of the Father's salvation provided in Christ our Passover lamb filters right down to the nitty-gritty of doing life together as the church, where we cleanse out the leaven of sins, of malice, of evil, and we hold firmly to the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This Greek word sincerity is an interesting word. It means literally judged by sunlight. I recently cleaned my car. Uh, it's an annual event for me. And I, I thought I had cleaned the inside of my windshield until when I was driving the sun shone directly through the glass and I realised it wasn't clean at all. It showed up all of the smudges, all of the dirt and grime. Sincerity means doing and saying something that we would not be ashamed of if it were made fully public, exposed by the sunlight. Sincerity means speaking as if we're happy that the people we're speaking about actually knew what we were saying about them. Sincerity is when the things that we do in secret are just as honouring to Christ as the things we do in public. So often we may speak the truth but not in love. Or we think we're loving by avoiding speaking the truth. But like the Israelites who swept their homes in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we're to sweep out the leaven of malice and evil. So only the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth remains. Now this is an incredibly high calling. It would be impossible for us to attain if we had to accomplish it ourselves. But we haven't washed ourselves. We haven't sanctified ourselves. We haven't justified ourselves. They were all things that were done by the Spirit of God as he applied to us the work of Christ. As a person, you are a new creation in Christ and as a church, we are a new household. We are set free in Christ for true freedom. As Galatians 5.1 tells us, "When I get it up there, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness towards Sinai and towards the Promised Land, there were times when they contemplated going back to Egypt, where the food and the water were plentiful. They forgot the bitterness of their slavery and only remembered that their appetites were satisfied they, they wanted to go back to Egypt where they were slaves and they didn't actually have the freedom anymore to worship their God. But they were no longer slaves. Egypt was no longer their home. Their future and their destiny is now in the Lord who has redeemed them through the Passover lamb and our identity is in Christ. Our lives as Individual persons, our lives as a church are to be shaped and defined by that momentous decisive event of His death and resurrection. It is in Christ that we live in liberty. And it's the liberty that He gives us that will be a display of the glory and the grace of the Father who's called us into His family. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the simple announcement of good news. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We receive afresh and anew the freedom, the liberty that he gives, the freedom from sin, the freedom from fear, the freedom from death, the freedom from hopelessness and purposelessness. We receive afresh the the new identity that he has given us as your sons and your daughters. We receive afresh the truth that we are adopted children, members of your household, with a hope and with a future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, uh, which speaks of Christ, the Lamb of God. Let's stand and sing.